Oh, also, um, what do you get someone for a bridal shower? Oh, baby, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't I think don't... you have to get me anything. I mean, I know next to nothing about what's happening at this, but I don't think it's like a traditional shower, so I don't think you have to get me anything. What? And me and Christopher are living in sin, so it's not like you're going to buy me like, oh, like a blender. Like... But isn't this for your dowry? <laughs> <laughs> I need three cows. And a bale of hay. (laughs) Great. I'll put them in the trunk. And welcome to Poor Unfortunate Podcast. I'm Connor Perkins. And I'm Caroline A. Meddy. Welcome to any returning listeners. It's great having you back here with us. And welcome to all of our new listeners. Thank you so much for hitting play. Go ahead and hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. That way all of our episodes download to your device. You don't miss out on anything, especially any bonus content that might come out whenever. So, you know hit that button. And then once you get to the end, please make sure to hit five stars and leave a written review so that other people can find the podcast. We're seen in search results, all that good stuff. And returning listeners, if you haven't done that on Apple Podcasts, we're actually three away from 100 written reviews. So uh, that would be freaking awesome if we could if we could get there. That would be really, really great. Other stuff, Poor Unfortunate Shop is open. So if you need some merch, go to poorunfortunatepodcast.com slash shop. See all of the stuff. Buy all of the stuff. You know, there you go. All right, Caroline, what's new? Well, Connor and I and Poor Unfortunate Podcast received some very exciting news. And that is that we are now an award-winning podcast. We are very grateful and honored to have won four awards in the Chesapeake Podcast Network Awards. So first of all, before I talk about what those were, thank you so much to not only all of you who voted for us, it means the world, but thank you to the Chesapeake Podcast Network and to Rich Bennett, who runs that network, um, who Connor was a guest on his podcast. He is just a wonderful human being. Yeah, and we're just so grateful to have been included. So we are now the winner of favorite podcast, favorite male host for Connor, favorite female host for me, and favorite host for Connor. So it's just very very exciting. It's um, very exciting. It means a lot. We were yeah. like, we so were, silly, but it we're, means so we're much. grinning like little fools right now. <laughs> we are. Oh, God. So thank you. Just thank you to everyone who voted. Yeah. But in other Disney news, I'm going to start with some, uh, some more good news, I would say. So as we've mentioned in previous episodes, cast members at Walt Disney World were striking for a livable wage. It was a fight for a livable wage. It has ended in what we 
can we can call it a victory. So the cast member minimum wage has been raised to $18 an hour, and all cast members will also receive a minimum of a $5.50 raise over the next five years. So voting took place actually. So we are recording this on March 29th. Voting took place today to ratify this new contract. Um, so while this is great news. Is $18 an hour a livable wage in the year of our Lord, 2023? No. No. Is it worth the bullshit that some of these cast members have to put up with on a daily basis Absolutely in the freaking Florida and California heat? No. Yeah. No. And at the level of joy and cheer that they have to have about their beings at every moment? Yeah. No. 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 But is it a step in the right direction? Yes. Yeah. So, and yeah. the cast members fought for it. And they deserve the world. So uh, congratulations. Well earned. I, Absolutely. I wish you have more in the future. I wish. Yes, you deserve it all. We can give you, you everything. I know. Take it all. Take it all. So in some other Walt Disney World news, April 2nd. So uh, now that you're listening to this, it's already happened. That was the last showings of Harmonious and Enchantment at Walt Disney World. So Enchantment will be making way for the return of Happily Ever After, which excites me more than I can possibly explain. <laughs> um, and Harmonious, remind me what's happening. We're, are, it's a filler? Are we getting a filler show? After it's a Harmonious? new show. Right. Um, right. After Harmonious, I believe Epcot Forever is, is returning uh-huh, temporarily. Uh-huh. Right, and then right. a new show is debuting in the fall. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, they're keeping it very vague right now. Uh I I don't I don't know. Yeah. We'll find we'll find out what happens. The barges are gone, so everyone yeah, I was can gonna stop say, complaining about that. Yeah. Yeah. But, what, I do appreciate that the amount of effort that went into something like Harmonious with all of these barges. I appreciate that Disney is willing to like listen to the reaction and like fine-tune and change it up. It takes a lot of see, work. Here's the thing with Harmonious. Like if you got rid of the barges, like fine. Don't get rid of that soundtrack. That soundtrack was fire. I did love the that music. Soundtrack. Was incredible, absolutely incredible. But you know what, though, I was listening to my D Park radio while I was working the other day, as you do. And when Illuminations came on, I was like, Illuminations is its own damn thing, right? And I'm like, I know that it's silly to like want things to be at that level, but <sighs> I thought Harmonious was at that level. Harmonious brings me to freaking tears. It didn't hit. In the same way for me. I don't know. I will say, when all of those, oh my God, when they're doing Someday and at like varying yeah. intervals, all of the rockets from the different countries are like shooting into the center and the center, the rockets are shooting back out. I was a puddle. I was a mm. mess. Mm. The soundtrack sure. for Harmonious, I am very sad that we won't get to see that continue on for for a longer life because if the show didn't remain the same the music could have they could have just changed the effects but (sighs) alas so goodbye goodbye to harmonious and enchantment end of an era uh and with some goodbyes always come some hellos so typhoon lagoon has reopened after four months of refurb So we finally got a water park back in action, which is pretty big news. Um, We also, they were announced some new character meet and greets coming to the park. So there is going to be a special area for you to meet Mirabelle in Magic Kingdom, which is so exciting. Moana 
and Figment. And I know yeah. there are a lot of people out there with mixed feelings about Figment, but I think that's pretty damn cool that you'll be able to meet him. The Figment meet and greet, that is something that like, that used to happen. That you used to be able to meet Dreamfinder and and Figment. Right, I remember. Like I've seen the old retro pictures of that in like the seventies or eighties. And they've yeah. shown the the new Dreamfinder costume and puppet, and it looks really good. It looks like, really good. That's just a little something new and exciting. I love that. Yeah, um, and the Moana meet and greet is in Animal Kingdom. Yes, 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 which, yes. Uh, which, uh, which people are taking as a bellwether for yes. some of that pie-in-the-sky Moana coming yeah. to Animal Kingdom stuff, I so I don't know. I think that sounds kind of accurate. Um, we also got a new a little food kiosk in Magic Kingdom as well, so related to Tron, um, there's a new kiosk called Energy Bites. Um, I've heard very mixed reviews about energy bites. I've like, heard that it's bad. <laughs> I've heard that it's bad. Let's just go right out and say it. But hey, we'll refine and improve over time. But, <laughs> but speaking of Tron, they've actually decided to move up the opening date of Tron. So that's opening on April 4th now. So when you're all getting this, if you're listening to it the day it comes out, that'll be tomorrow. So oh, wow. that's exciting. I mean, people still don't fit on it, but. Great. Good good to know. And then some other Disney Parks news that I have. The attraction posters were released for World of Frozen at Hong Kong Disneyland. And they look spectacular. Like also I want to see. Preview, I have to look them up. Oh. The preview of Hong Kong Disneyland's World of Frozen, like the, the footage of like what they've done. It's incredible. Yeah. It's fucking Arendelle. It's real. And they're getting it's that amazing real. animatronic of Elsa without I the saw projection her. mapping. Oh my God. She's it's unreal. She's, yeah. Yeah. And they also are getting an additional ride that's like a, a bobsled ride, not like Matterhorn, but like. I am uh, very intrigued like, by that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. Uh, it looks like a really, really good addition. I want to go. So, I want to go. Yeah, but I love, I love the tradition of attraction posters, and I love that here we are in 2023, and we're keeping that going, and we're even honoring parks from all over the world as we do attraction posters. Because let's face it, the attractions that they get overseas are ten times better than what we get here. Yep. So let's see. You know, I always love to throw in a little update about the Little Mermaid live action as we get yeah, closer we and go. closer. Yeah. <laughs> so we did get the trailer. We got the trailer. Oh my god! Right, we haven't been on since then. We yeah. did indeed get the trailer during the Oscars. God bless. <laughs> it God's was amazing. Bless. God's uh, but the original soundtrack will be released on May nineteenth. Perfect timing for me. That is one day before I get married, so I know what we'll be listening to. <laughs> oh, my God. We're <laughs> Sorry, be getting everybody. ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's that's set. Um, but it's available for pre-order now, so you can, you know, get it all set up to download right to your device on the 19th. Yeah. So With some new that. shit from Alan Menken and Lin-Manuel Miranda. So I can't wait to find good. out what that's going to be. Ugh. Uh, speaking of the Oscars, though, real yeah. quick, I yes. do want to shout out the <gasps> two winners that Disney had at the Oscars. So the award for best visual effects went to Avatar, The Way of Water. Kind of obviously, the whole movie was a visual effect. And the <laughs> second one uh, that was won by Disney is for costume design. That went to Black Panther Wakanda Forever mm. for Ruth Carter. She's amazing. Her costumes are fucking amazing. Yeah, I feel honestly. I re-listened to the Puas episode, and I and when we got to the to the headwear category, I, I think I messed up. But just like the Academy, I can't take back my decision. So, 
And then as we let you all know, as so many of you let us know, just in case we had missed it, Brandy and Paolo Montalban are going to be in the new Descendants movie yeah, as are. Cinderella and King Charming. <laughs> and I don't really know how to be right now. Um, thank you to everyone who sent us that on yeah. social media. You see us. You understand us, and that means the world. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, we also got some new posters for Peter Pan and Wendy, which will be released mm-hmm. on April 28th. And then I could have, based off of Connor's review, I sort of could have seen this coming, but Willow has indeed been canceled after one season. I'm so sorry, Connor. I know you were so excited for that. No, do not apologize. Um, yeah. I've I've debated about whether I'm going to rant about Willow at some point. <gasps> I think oh. I need to give it at least a year because okay. what we saw was not Willow. That was... Wow. Um, I'm glad that we put it out of its misery. It, it needed to end. It was, <laughs> it was bad. It was It was not... Oh, God. It was so... Ooh. The potential. Oh God. I'm so sorry. So no, I'm not I'm not sad. Uh I'm sad for what we what we didn't get. Could have been. Uh, yeah. And, and, but I did not want this show continuing. Absolutely <laughs> not. So we got the new elemental trailer. I think it looks so freaking good. I am so excited for this movie. Peter Sohn is directing it, who he directed my favorite Pixar short of all time, Partly Cloudy, which oh. appeared before Up. So, yeah. which is also so fun because if you look at the the air characters, it is the clouds from the partly cloudy short. So oh it's, my God. it ties over. It's really great. It's oh, really great. Wow. Um, but they also announced that the short that's going to be attached to Elemental before is called Carl's Date, and it's about Carl Fredrickson going on I a date. I can't. I'm Doug, not going to be able to watch that. Continues on Doug Day. So. That's going to be really good. Other Disney movie news. Wish, the Disney animation feature that's coming out this November. We've gotten some news that evidently Chris Pine is going to be in the film as the villain. And that he will sing. So... And then the other news that we got, too. um, They dropped this very recently. Questlove is going to be directing a live-action hybrid Aristocats remake. So, um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Fucking uh, no, well, because when I first heard about it, I was like, please, no. But then I heard Questlove and I was like, huh. I'm, okay. I'm just like, I'm okay with them remaking some of these older movies because I'm like, yeah, put some freshness into it. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, and you Lady know, I loved great. that Lady in the Tramp. I love it. That was my first thing I ever watched on Disney Plus, and I loved it. So, Lady in the know. Tramp was great. The remake of 101 Dalmatians was great. Cruella was great. Yeah. Remaking things from this era of Disney animation, uh, yeah. I think, is a really good choice. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm okay. I'm. We'll take all the content. Who are we kidding? <laughs> We're just like sure. <laughs> all right. So is that everything that you've got? That's what I've got. Then let's dive into the episode. So we are back to a rant and rave episode. Woo! This time I have the rant, Caroline has the rave, and we have landed on a topic that is oddly specific, but also is kind of far-reaching in Disney. So we're talking today about royal mentorships. Mm. So this is any relationship between a mentor and someone who might one day be a royal. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's dive into these mentor-teacher relationships. Since I have the rant, 
I'm going to go first. Mm-hmm. Take it away. Here we go. One of the most famous royal mentorships of all time is that of the boy who would be King Arthur and the wizard Merlin. But does the Disney depiction live up to the legend? Is Disney's Merlin actually the teacher that Wart deserves? Or is there someone else who fits the role better? Mama has some thoughts. Mm, I'm so ready for this. (laughs) Some background information. (laughs) All right, background information. Sword in the Stone, uh, this movie was released December 12th, 1963 in London, December 25th, Christmas, 1963 in the United States. It was directed by Wolfgang Reitherman. It's based on The Sword in the Stone by T.H. White, which is now published as the first book of T.H. White's The Once and Future King. So The Once and Future King is now what you buy, and it's three books in one. Mm. The story is by Bill Pete. I love Bill Pete. You do. Yeah. And it was produced by Walt Disney. It stars, among others, Ricky Sorensen, Richard Reitherman, and Robert Reitherman as Wart slash Arthur, because puberty as a child voice actor sucks, am I right? (laughs) Carl Swenson as Merlin, Junius Matthews as Archimedes, Sebastian Cabot as Sir Ector, Norman Aiden as Sir Kay, and Martha Wentworth as Madame Mim, also the Granny Squirrel. Oh, woof. Yeah. I'm not going to give a plot synopsis because I just do not have time for that right now. <laughs> Go watch the fucking film if you haven't seen it. Like, you know you know this story. Jesus. So let's just dive in. Oh, oh, you're on fire today. I'm ready for this. Business News Daily lists the three qualities of a good mentorship as communication, listening, and teaching. Personally, I don't think this is a very high bar. Be clear and honest, practice active listening and empathy, and create an environment suitable for instruction. At first glance, Merlin doesn't seem so bad. He values and prioritizes education, genuinely cares for Arthur, and gives him the one-on-one attention that Arthur so desperately craves. He is kind and generous, albeit a bit bumbling and confused, often Mm. losing himself in the excitement of the future. But still, it doesn't seem too bad from afar. But when we zoom in and look at each quality of a successful mentorship, there are some alarming misses. Meanwhile, throughout the whole film, we see another character actually demonstrate successful mentorship without ever seeking it in the first place, Archimedes. Mm. In this rant, I am going to unpack why Merlin is not the best mentor for Wart and how a curmudgeonly old owl steps up to the plate time and time again. Oh my god. We're going to start with communication, the foundation of everything, really. Merlin's communication issues really stem from three things. Lack of organization, contradiction, and a lack of transparency. Lack of organization. Throughout the entire film, we see Merlin time and time again confusing himself as he grapples with knowledge that spans the past, present, and future. He talks himself in circles or will get ahead of himself to the point that he has to walk back whatever he just said. 
when Merlin is on his own, he just sort of shrugs it off and keeps going. But that doesn't work when you're trying to get a point across to someone. You need to see how your words are landing. And if they aren't, adapt. You need to have your thoughts and your shit together. In the first scene between Merlin and Wart in his house over tea, Merlin goes on tangents relaying advanced knowledge that is way over Wart's head. Oh my god. After all, in addition to just meeting Wart a few moments ago, he learns that he has to start Wart's education from the beginning. Merlin monologues while Wart sits frozen in a stupor, blinking in an attempt to keep up. But also (laughs) thank you because this is one of my favorite gifts of all time. (laughs) Yes, me too. A good mentor would see that they are struggling to communicate and adapt their approach. Instead, Merlin just keeps barreling on and anything that was missed is missed. Later in the film, we see Merlin attempting to teach Wart about how the world is round and revolves around the sun, knowledge that is discovered and backed by science way in the future. When Wart is struggling to make sense of this, Archimedes points out that Wart having this knowledge now, without any understanding of the supporting evidence, would have him labeled as a madman. Mm. He observes that, quote, man has always learned from the past, end quote, and to teach him history from the future will just confuse him. (gasps) Rather than organize his thoughts and lessons into something digestible for Wart, Merlin simply gives up and turns instruction over to Archimedes, the owl. Contradiction. Merlin's knowledge of the past and the future is almost always at war within him and leads him to frequent contradiction. Contradiction is like the number one no-no of clear communication, as it negates your entire chain of logic and basically has you turn around and start again. It's the 404 error on your computer in conversation form. (laughs) In the fish transformation scene, Merlin tells Wart that his transformation is solely physical and that he retains his knowledge of being human, meaning that he lacks any instincts that fish might have. But not even five minutes later, when Wart eats a bug and is alarmed, Merlin chalks it up to fishy instinct. Wart reminds him that Merlin told him that he doesn't have a fish's instincts, and Merlin just says, oh, yes, and moves on. No. Not reassuring. (laughs) No. Not only does it make it difficult to get your point across when you're not clear on what that point even is— contradictions tend to dissolve trust in a communicative relationship. Quickly, this person is no longer someone who can speak with authority on something since their logic is no longer sound. And lack of transparency. This is more often than not what threatens trust, the same trust that is the foundation of communication and mentorship relationships. Merlin has a hidden motive. He knows that something important is supposed to happen with Wart and that he should prepare him for that, although it's unclear if he remembers or can even keep straight what that destiny is until he sees Wart crowned at the end of the film. (laughs) Regardless, he is trying to force the future and play with fate. And Merlin enters into this mentorship relationship without coming clean to Wart about his intentions and his why. 
he can be purposefully misleading in the hopes of having a teachable moment when just being open and honest may get the result in a healthier way. Mm. I think the best example of the erosion of trust comes from when Merlin tells Wart right out of the gate that he shouldn't get any foolish ideas that magic will solve all of your problems because it won't. But then privately admits to Archimedes that he intends to cheat and use magic to trick Wart into learning and pull him away from his more medieval, menial tasks. I mean... Hell, that's a contradiction as well, considering that he uses magic for most things. I was going to say, right. Packing his house to (laughs) every single fucking lesson. At the end of the film, when Merlin sees Wart crowned as King Arthur, he begins to rattle off facts about Wart's future. And I can't help but imagine how Wart might react if the movie had one more scene. It's such a betrayal of trust to learn that your mentor and confidant knew more than they let on. And it rocks that mentor relationship to its core. It calls into question the motivation behind every single encounter all the way back to the first meeting. Mm. And so here's where Archimedes slays in communication. Archimedes is actually a much better communicator than Merlin. He is honest without being mean, although he can be grumpy. And he adapts to whatever he is receiving from Wart as a pupil. When he takes over Wart's instruction and he learns that Wart cannot read or write, he doesn't just keep on talking about how he should read the huge pile of books in the room anyway. He adapts and begins to teach Wart the alphabet and how to write. He also doesn't have any ulterior motive. What you see is what you get. When he's helping Wart, it's for the boy's sake, not because he has any knowledge of the future or who Wart might become. There is an honesty that is at the root of his relationship with Wart, which allows them to have such a healthy mentorship and friendship by the time they are on their own at the end of the film. So that's communication. Wait, I just love it. This is turning it. This is so you that it's also turning into like Archimedes absolutely slays. Like that's so you. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on to listening, the next key component of a successful mentorship. While I think there are definitely moments that Merlin falls short as a listener, I do think we can excuse some of that away with the fact that his character is old and bumbling. But where I want to take listening is more in the direction of practicing empathy and being in tune with who Wart is as a mentee. We see Merlin commit the cardinal sin of a mentor. He makes it about him. And not in an obvious way of feeling some sort of competition with his mentee, but rather in pushing his agenda at the expense of Wart. Time and time again, Merlin is dismissive of Wart's other interests, creating a reliance on their relationship only to abandon him later in frustration. So let's unpack this a bit. In casual conversations, Wart confides in Merlin about his duties at the castle and interests in jousting and knighthood, relatively common interests for a boy of his age and background. And also, if he's supposed to become King Arthur, he's going to need to know that shit anyway. In these moments, Merlin dismisses his duties and poo-poos his interests. 
At their first meeting, when Merlin asks about Wart's education, and Wart enthusiastically talks about his combat and horsemanship teachings, Merlin says, quote, no, I mean a real education, end quote, <gasps> reducing Wart's studies and interests to something less than. As they travel to the castle, Wart says that he doesn't have the time for Merlin's teaching because of his page duties. Merlin laughs at that as they are, again, below the education that he hopes to impart on Wart. But at this point in their relationship, he doesn't know Wart's life. He doesn't know the people that are responsible for caring him or the abuse that he suffers. To shrug off Wart's duties and living situation is just flat irresponsible. On their walk near the moat before the first lesson, Wart is going on and on about his dreams and hoping that he is worthy of being Kay's squire. As an orphan, being a squire to a knight is a huge accomplishment. Mm. And for Wart, it is the distillation of his hope to move on to something greater. Oh, Wart. Wart remarks that being a squire is, quote, a tough job too, you know. To which Merlin sarcastically replies, quote, Oh, yes, I would say almost impossible, end quote. In that one comment, he completely dismisses what is at that moment Wart's biggest accomplishment and dream. Caddy. While all of this is happening, Merlin is also creating an over-reliance on his relationship with Wart. Rather than giving Wart his space, allowing him to develop other relationships and carry on with other duties outside of his role as mentor, Merlin intervenes into Wart's daily life. We see this at the time of the second lesson when Wart is responsible for cleaning dishes in the kitchen. Merlin uses magic, remember that thing that won't solve all your problems, <laughs> to create an assembly line so that they can play hooky and he can teach him. To him, washing dishes couldn't possibly be as important as a lesson with Merlin, and they have a special relationship, after all. But at this point, Merlin is aware of how hard Sir Ector is on Wart, his day-to-day -day life, and also the castle's general fear of magic. By intervening in Wart's outside life and intervening in this way, he brings down trouble for Wart that costs him being Kay's squire, the best thing in Wart's life at that moment. Merlin also uses magic to impress Wart and strengthen their relationship. Now, this isn't to a problematic grooming level, but he is aware of how much of a dreamer Wart is and uses his powers that only he possesses to build a relationship. In a way, by carrying out lessons that are solely experiential and reliant on magic, he is also cementing himself as the sole figure in Wart's life to come to for education. How many months has he been there before Archimedes learns that Wart doesn't know how to read or write? This means that no other type of instruction has been happening, but it also means that without the fundamentals of reading, writing, and math, Wart is cut off from pursuing other types of knowledge on his own. In a way, he keeps Wart in this persistent state of educated ignorance from anything that is outside of Merlin's dictated classroom scenario. And that's unhealthy. Ooh. But perhaps the worst thing of all that Merlin does 
is leave. And Mm -hmm. for the reason why. When Wart is unexpectedly rewarded with being Kay's squire again, days before the trip to London, Wart hurries up the tower to share the good news with Merlin and Archimedes. After the position was taken from Wart, Merlin appeared to Wart in the kitchen and apologized for his role in having the privilege revoked. He says that he knows the trip to London meant a great deal to him. This same Merlin is the one who, upon hearing that Wart has been reinstated, throws a temper tantrum. He calls the position idiotic, calls his uniform a monkey suit, says to Wart, quote, I thought you had brains, end quote, and knocks over piles and piles of books. As Wart, who is struggling with his identity, being caught between who Merlin wants him to be and who he actually is, begins to cry, Merlin erupts in a rage, saying, blow me to Bermuda, and leaves. He leaves Wart there with Archimedes, feeling that he is solely to blame for Merlin's unhappiness that caused him to leave and go to a country he had never even heard of. And he leaves Wart alone, without a human advocate, as Wart experiences the biggest event in his life, pulling the sword from the stone. Wow, it's so sad. And now let's talk about Archimedes. Yeah. Although a grumpy old owl, Archimedes is a good listener and quite empathetic. When Wart shares the news that he has been reinstated as squire, although he doesn't fully approve... Archimedes swallows his pride and offers genuine congratulations. He recognizes that this is something that is important to Wart, and it's important for him to support his student. Archimedes also does not create an unhealthy attachment with Wart. By teaching him how to read and write, Archimedes is empowering Wart with the ability to seek knowledge outside of their relationship. And when Merlin leaves Archimedes... He could easily just fly off and be done with the whole situation. After all, none of this was his idea to begin with. But instead, he sticks with Wart, travels with him to London, and supports him through the ordeal with the sword and coronation. He becomes the figure that Wart can lean on for advice and good counsel, in addition to just being a friend. (laughs) And so that's strike two. (laughs) And now teaching. Of all the Disney characters, Merlin is usually up there when we think of the great teachers in the Disney canon. But there are significant flaws in the lessons that he tries to impart and the environment for learning that he creates. (laughs) We see three lessons in the film taught through various animal transformations. The fish transformation the squirrel transformation, and the bird transformation that ends with the iconic wizard's duel with Madame Mim. But the takeaway from each lesson remains more or less the same every time. Mm -hmm. Brains over brawn, look before you leap, knowledge and wisdom is the real power. Each lesson is teaching Wart to invest in his education as that will serve him well. Great. Grand. Love it. So where is the education? What do we see of this education that Merlin so desperately wants for Wart? Again, some time has passed. We have seen two animal transformations before Archimedes makes the discovery that Wart can't read or write. 
How good is this education that he is actually getting from Merlin that Merlin is so desperate for him to value? I don't see it. Mm -hmm. But above that, it is the responsibility of the instructor to create a safe environment for learning. Don't get this confused with comfortable because, yes, sometimes learning can be uncomfortable or require you to challenge yourself. Field trips are important, but you have to make sure that safety is taken care of so the student is free to learn and Merlin does not do that work. Did he scout out the moat ahead of time and the area they would be swimming in? If so, I'm sure he would have seen that giant-ass pike with the underbite. (laughs) In the two transformation lessons where Merlin is the chaperone, he is always the last one to know (laughs) about the present danger. In the fish transformation, Wart and the frog are already being pursued by the pike, and in the throes of a fight before Merlin realizes and tries to help— And then when he does, he is quickly trapped inside a sunken frickin' helmet. It becomes quite clear that this situation is rapidly escalating from teachable moment to life-threatening situation. And guess what? (laughs) The wizard can't even remember the fucking words to the transformation spell to turn them human again. That's like rule number one in spellcasting. Before casting a spell... Always know the spell to undo it. Get her. (laughs) This is gross negligence as a teacher. And how on earth could this possibly get worse? Well, it does. In the squirrel transformation, Merlin is completely in the dark that there is a vicious, starving wolf hunting Wart and that his pupil is trapped with his tail caught in a log on the forest floor about to be eaten. Merlin's off dealing with the nuisance of a lady squirrel, and he lets that consume him to the point of abandoning his responsibility to protect Wart. As Wart and Merlin walk off after the lesson, Merlin still has no friggin' clue that his pupil almost died on his watch in a loud and very obvious fight scene. Two for two. This should be the end of his career as an educator. Like, that's when they take your license. <laughs> Merlin repeatedly exposes Wart to unnecessary peril to drive home the same point about the importance of an education that he sucks at teaching. Yeah. Meanwhile, Archimedes is the one who saves Wart from the pike. Despite being a bird, despite being out of the water and not part of the lesson, Archimedes is on top of the situation as soon as Wart and the pike breach the surface. He springs into action, attacks the pike, goes underwater, and risks his own life for a student in trouble. This is the hero substitute teacher that we all deserve. But even when he isn't just saving Merlin's negligent ass, we get to see what Archimedes is like as a teacher in the bird transformation. He tells Wart the best way to learn flying is simply by doing it, not studying all of the mechanics like Merlin wants him to. He speaks to Wart in language that Wart can understand. Mm. Fan your tail, spread your wings way out, tippity-toe, tippity-toe, off we go, that sort of thing. And when he does... Wart understands immediately. While in flight, Archimedes continues to give simple, clear instructions that are easy for Wart to follow. 
He offers positive reinforcement and encouragement to keep Wart's morale up, and the flying lesson goes wonderfully. And in terms of maintaining a safe environment, Archimedes is in control. He is the one who spots the hawk and gives the alert to Wart. He has eyes above and below focusing on potential threats so that Wart can focus on his education. And while, yes, a predator does appear, this is how you successfully manage an environment as an instructor. So despite all of this, Merlin's not a bad character and by no means the worst mentor that ever lived. <laughs> eh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but is he the best mentor for Wart? I would say no. Although their pairing is one of the most famous teacher-student relationships in Disney history, there are enough glaring flaws in communication, listening, and teaching that would mark this royal mentorship as unsuccessful in my book. Twice in this film, Merlin taunts Archimedes that if he knows best, he should teach Wart. Twice in this film, Merlin hands over instruction to Archimedes, someone who never wanted to be there in the first place. And twice in this film, Archimedes shows Merlin up on being the effective mentor that Wart deserves. He is undoubtedly the unsung hero of the Sword and the Stone, and I think it's time that we knock Merlin off his pedestal. If he's smart, maybe he'll learn a thing or two from his pet owl. But this is my formal revocation of Merlin's Teacher of the Year Award. <gasps> yes. This may, this whole thing made me so sad for Wart. It's pretty tragic. Like, I think about, like, this this Arthur becoming the king. He's going to be damaged. <laughs> like, yeah. he's not going to be well. Wow. And Wart consistently has just, like, such an optimistic and bright-eyed and openness to him that when you see him cry to Merlin because he's he's crying and he's calling out for help because he's like I don't understand I'm trying to please everyone I'm trying to be who you want me to be I'm trying to be who my surrogate father and, and surrogate brother want me to be and I'm trying to figure out who I even am and I'm confused and I'm just desperate to find some sort of normalcy. Merlin literally like looks him in the face and says, no, and leaves. Fuck that. That's terrible. Oh, God. That's unforgivable. <sighs> and it, it's so odd, like having just, I, I have an interesting perspective because I just saw Camelot on Broadway and like how much Merlin means to that Arthur and how much he relies on him. It's such a strange contrast to look at this Merlin. Like what? I mean, it's also kind of tragic too. I mean, in the actual Arthur story because Merlin disappears unexpectedly yeah. from grown Arthur as yeah, well. And yeah. Arthur doesn't understand what happened. And yeah, I mean, there's so different theories. There's Merlin being trapped in the cave and like this, uh-huh. that sort of, so he's prevented from yeah, coming back yeah. to, to Arthur. But uh, it's just, it's a sad story. It's a, it's, there's a lot of adventure. There's a lot of optimism. It's a story of leadership and love and, finding yourself and everything but there's a there's a hefty amount of heartache that comes with it. I love the legend and I just have never liked this movie and I think it's this is why. I don't know, it just always something just rubbed me the wrong way about it. It didn't feel it didn't feel good. I mean, Merlin never even calls Wart by his proper name Arthur. I know. Even though 
when Wart introduces himself, he says, my name's Arthur, but everybody calls me Wart. Merlin never sits there and He's says, like, okay, wait, Wart. why? He's like, why, why would they call you that? That's, <laughs> that's awful. As someone who is currently a guardian for a small child. Yeah, can you imagine? Ugh. I could not imagine doing this to someone that I cared about. No, it's cruel. No, this made me sad. Oh my gosh, I thought this was going to make me like annoyed, but it made me sad. It's fun until you get into the listening section and like <sighs> looking at the empathy and the empathy yeah. of it. Like, There's a lot of cruelty there. there. Yeah, there is. Fuck mm. it. All right, cheer us up. Let's do a rave. Okay, I will do my best. This episode is taking on its own little tiny miniature Camelot theme, obviously with the sword and the stone tie-in, but now uh, I'm going to tie in some Julie Andrews. Yeah. So I am going to talk about the Princess Diaries and why Queen Clarice is an absolutely fantastic example of a royal mentor. So interestingly, like, you know how you talked about, we think about Merlin and Arthur and it's like the ultimate mentorship, like helping him become king. In the opposite way, I think sometimes we think of the Princess Diaries and we think about like, we think about the makeover scene and we kind of have this idea of like Queen Clarice kind of being like regal and like looking down on Mia, who is sort of gawky and awkward and doesn't really know what she's doing. We think of her teaching her not to slouch and how to wave to a crowd properly. We think of etiquette, even a power imbalance. But what's actually going on between Clarice and Mia is far more gentle and trusting than the trope of stuffy, unfeeling princess lessons. But first, some background information. So The Princess Diaries was released on August 3rd, 2001. It is directed by Gary Marshall, and the screenplay is by Gina Wendkos. It is based on the Princess Diaries series by Meg Cabot and produced by our two most absolute queens of Poor Unfortunate Podcast, Deborah Martin Chase and Whitney Effin Houston, baby, baby. Baby, baby. Uh, it stars, among others, Anne Hathaway in her big debut as Mia Thermopolis, Dame Julie Andrews as Queen Clarice Rinaldi, Hector Elizondo as Joe, Heather Matarazzo as Lily, Mandy Moore as Lana Thomas, Caroline Goodall as Helen Thermopolis, Robert Schwartzman as Michael Moskowitz, and Eric Von Detten as Josh Bryant. The budget of the film was $26 million, and the box office was $165.3 million. Interestingly, it has a 68% audience score in Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.4 on IMDb, and that's very rude and wrong. Incorrect. That's wrong. <laughs> so I'm not going to give a whole plot synopsis. In the off chance, I simply don't know why. If you need a little refresher of The Princess Diaries, here you go, right from IMDb. Shy San Francisco teenager Mia Thermopolis is thrown for a loop when from out of the blue, she learns the astonishing news that she is a real-life princess. As the heir apparent to the crown of the small European principality of Genovia, Mia begins a journey toward the throne when her strict and formidable grandmother, Queen Clarice Rinaldi, shows up to give her princess lessons. And honestly, already, formidable? Yeah, I mean, that's unavoidable because Julie Andrews is playing the role, but strict? I actually beg to differ, but we'll get there. So interestingly, 
the origin of the idea of mentorship has strong connections to royalty. So Louis XIV, the Sun King, ruled France for 72 years and hired a priest named Francois Fenelon to become the royal tutor, otherwise known as the governor of the royal grandchildren. Interestingly, Fenelon was not a fan of Louis, but rather than influencing his charge, the young Duke of Burgundy, who was about seven years old when he began uh, that mentorship, rather than influencing him outright, he used stories, most notably his own version of the story of Telemachus, who is the son of Ulysses, to attack the divine right absolute monarchy. Even cooler, the idea of mentorship is inspired by the character Mentor in Homer's Odyssey. Ulysses entrusted his son, Telemachus, to the care and direction of his old and trusted friend Mentor before setting out on his voyage. Telemachus was guided and advised by Mentor, and this is where we get the word from. But back to Fenelon. It is said that he transformed the young Duke of Burgundy from a spoiled and violent child to one with self-control and a sense of the weight of his future duties as king. I bet you that the success of this mentorship is largely due to the fact that Fenelon passed his lessons onto the young royal in a more indirect way. Stories allowed the young duke to reach his own conclusions rather than being spoon-fed opinions that he didn't come up with. He was allowed to decide what monarchy and being the king meant to him. And this is exactly the approach Queen Clarice takes with Mia. She is way more trusting, gentle, relaxed, and hands-off in her mentorship of the future princess than we have ever given her credit for. The prerequisite for being a perfect mentor fit to mentor a princess is, of course, royal experience. So Clarice has that. It's obvious. But the way that she wields this experience is incredibly subtle and has convinced me that the supportive and relatively hands-off mentoring style is why this is a contender for one of the best mentorships in Disney history. Clarice proves that a great mentor is also an admirable person outside of their relationship to their mentee. So let's take a look at who Clarice is as an individual first. So most importantly, Clarice is very different from the queen in the Meg Cabot book series. Our first introduction to Queen Clarice in the movie is through Mia and Helen's discussion of her. Mia calls her the snobby lady who ignores us. This conjures up a vision of a Queen Clarice much more like the one from the book series. That Queen Clarice, (laughs) she is a friggin' trip. She (sighs) is a chain smoker with tattooed on eyeliner, an obsession with sidecars, and a miniature poodle. The books are very different from the movie. In the books, like Mia's father is still alive and is very much a part of her journey to becoming a princess. So, In the books, Clarice serves as more of a darkly comedic and chaotic force who serves to shake up Mia's story a lot. Princess lessons still exist in the book, but in the book, they're extremely damaging to Mia. At one point, Clarice literally tells Mia that she looks like a hooker. Uh. (laughs) And Clarice is the one who leaks Mia's identity to the press and like is the one who causes the paparazzi to follow her around. It's a lot. Oh, I don't like this. Oh, the the <laughs> Grand Mary is what they call her in the books. She's absolutely wild. 
So May Cabot actually had struggled to get the original book published um, as some of the content was considered a little bit inappropriate for younger readers. I absolutely devoured them, but they definitely um, gave me an education on some more adult topics. So I get it. (laughs) Um, So when Disney bought the rights to the book, Deborah Martin Chase developed the script with Gina Wenko and Cabot purposefully stayed away from the screenwriting process so that the books and film could live in their own universes. Aspects of the book, like Mia's political inclinations, were softened a bit for the film, and the goal of a G rating likely also led to the softening of Clarice as well, who is referred to as Grand Mare in the book. So director Gary Marshall personally invited Julie Andrews to discuss the film and the role of Clarice with him. She accepted the role without reading the script on the basis of Marshall being the director alone, and much of Clarice's portrayal was left up to her. Julie Andrews had to have been a huge departure for Meg Cabot from the Clarice in her head and in the books. And although she had fears that Andrews was too kind for the role, Andrews' acceptance of the role was cause enough to have Mia's father be written out of the story in order to expand the role of the queen. Julie's extensive knowledge of European royalty, both from past roles and her recent knighting as a dame, really transformed Clarice into the regal royal that we now know and treasure, rather than a crusty, chaotic New York City, I don't even know what. (laughs) Like, (laughs) she's something else. The Queen Clarice in the book is very Yzma. That's what it conjures up to me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, Clarice as Mia's mentor is a relationship that belongs almost entirely to the film. While Grand Mare in the books brings to light everything Mia is lacking, this Clarice has a natural faith in her granddaughter that is the crux of what makes a great mentor. Rather than crafting a new made-to-order princess out of scratch, Clarice brings out the best of who Mia already is. I think this change and this Clarice are largely responsible for the success of this film. Anne Hathaway's Mia is, of course, absolute perfection. But faced with a more diabolical, shall we say, queen, this movie would have felt way more snarky. But The Princess Diaries has a warm, fun, beating heart at its center, supplied by the mentorship between Clarice and Mia. So here's one of the great things about Clarice as a person. She is definitely still imperfect, but she does her best. So despite the beauty, the grace, and the practical perfection that Julie Andrews imbues every role with, this Queen Clarice is not without her flaws. Okay, so she was a stranger to Mia for her whole life up until this point, which on the surface does not look great. But we do find out later that Philippe, who is Mia's father, and Clarice agreed to stay away from Mia, granting Mia's mother Helen's wish that she be able to have a normal childhood. So we quickly learn that what appeared to be a haughtiness or a lack of care was actually Clarice acting with Mia's best interests at heart. One of Clarice's most glaring missteps is when she shames Mia for the incident at the school beach party resulting in less-than-regal photos of Mia being plastered all over newspapers. I embarrassed the family, didn't I? asked Mia, and Clarice replies, yes, you did. I think you're making a wise decision to abstain from the job. Listen, I actually already have to give Clarice some points here because she could have blown up at Mia, or she could have been at least super stern and a little bit shamey, or even used some choicer words, but she really doesn't. And despite that, despite the fact that she really did keep her cool, 
When Joe tells Clarice that she was too hard on Mia, we really see her take in what he says. She never becomes a wet noodle, though. She reminds Joe that it is her job to be critical of the person who could become the next ruler of her country. We see some of her real frustration for a moment, which she notably did not show Mia. But she never shuts down and never tells Joe that he's wrong. And then lo and behold, a few days later, Clarice has clearly listened and taken his words to heart. She offers Mia an incredibly sincere apology. She says, I came to apologize for the way I spoke to you about the beach incident. It was judgmental of me. I didn't pause to verify the facts. No gaslighting, no over-explaining, just ownership of her actions and her words and her attitude. Mm. And as this relates to her role as Mia's mentor, without this kind of humility, a mentee relationship will crumble. If Mia, being as insecure and judgmental of herself as she is, ever felt like Clarice was this unreachable, condescending queen on a pedestal, she wouldn't have made it past one princess lesson. I think this is also just the beauty of Julie's performance. Julie Andrews is so damn perfect that it would honestly be easy for her to come off as a little holier than thou without even needing to. Because let's face it, Julie Andrews really is better than all of us. She's she's better than she's, she's better than all of us. Everyone <laughs> she is, but she gives Clarice this very no nonsense, straightforward humility that makes it so easy to love her rather than view her as uptight. Clarice is also patient and totally unflappable. We never see Clarice sweat, despite the fact that basically every character in the film, maybe Joe aside, really tests her. She never loses her temper with anyone. She never condescends. And she never bats an eyelash at the most major chaos. Here are a few quick examples of the true, like, let it roll off your back nature of Clarice. I mean, the dinner party. The dinner. That's the first example. After Mia causes a near disaster at the state dinner party, Clarice is quick to just laugh along with everybody else. This woman could not be further from stuffy. After, (laughs) this is one of my favorites. When Clarice is being bombarded by paparazzi at Mia's school, she does not even blink. And in an absolutely iconic moment, one of my favorites, she takes the microphone out of a reporter's hand who's just shoving it in her face, places it in his shirt pocket, pats it gently, and walks away. Oh my God, (laughs) what a power move. (laughs) Even at the end of the film, you know, in the moment when Mia is either going to accept or turn down the crown, It looks like Mia has straight up ghosted at the most important event in Genovia's recent history. But aside from one fleeting look of disappointment, Clarice steps up and prepares to speak in Mia's place. No anger, no complaining. Mia arrives soaking wet in a sweatshirt. The woman does not bat an eyelash. Clarice, she just also meets most things in life with not only patience, but this low-key, incredible sense of humor. (laughs) One of my favorite lines of hers is, It's bigger than orthodontia when Mia compares becoming a princess to getting braces. Like, chef's kiss. Just so good. And another wonderful thing about Clarice as a person is that she really sees people. I think one of the most gorgeous lessons that Clarice teaches Mia is how to be seen. Clarice is the first person who fully takes Mia in, sees her, has feedback for her for sure, but doesn't outright eviscerate her. When she's teaching Mia not to schlump, 
She's teaching her how to take up space. It's obvious from the way that Mia blossoms that making someone feel seen is the most important thing you can do. But Clarice does it to everyone. When Vice Principal Gupta, iconically played by Sandra Oh, will literally, oh my God, will not get out of Clarice's face and stop fawning over her. Clarice gets rid of her. China. (laughs) Such a good scene. Here, and she hands her the styrofoam (laughs) cup. It's that whole movie. Ah, it's so good. Clarice gets rid of her, not by dismissing her, but by making her feel even more important by asking her to look into matters of royal security at the school. She's able to take someone in and quickly assess the real human need underneath the behavior that could be super irritating. Vice Principal Gupta clearly just wants to feel needed and feel important, and Clarice just gives that to her. I mean, she knights a trolley driver for F's sake. Yes. And you can oh, see yes. in his face that he feels appreciated for, I don't know, maybe the first time in his life. She recognizes that for most people, being seen and acknowledged by a royal carries a lot more weight than being recognized by a regular person. And she wields that power with grace and generosity. She strategically allows people in. She allows them to reach her despite their difference in status. She's not stoic. She is not aloof. And it's just clear that everyone adores her from Charlotte to Joe to Paolo. It's because she makes everyone feel special. She trusts in their opinions allows them to fully carry out their duties without interference, and doesn't lord being a queen over anyone. And on that note, if we're going to judge people by who they surround themselves by, Clarice is clearly a winner. Everyone she works with has a genuine heart. No snobbery. My favorite example of Clarice seeing people is in the way she treats her children. Parent-child expectations can always carry a lot of baggage and then just quadruple that when the family is royal. Hello, Prince Harry. But Clarice let her sons, the two heirs to the throne, live their lives exactly as they pleased. Pierre, her older son, wanted to refuse the crown and join the church. No problem. Philippe looked like he was going to do the same and run away to a life as a civilian with Helen. Clarice did not stop him. She explains to Mia that it was Philippe's own guilt and actual desire to serve his people that made him change his mind. It's so difficult for many parents to watch their children lead lives that aren't what they envisioned for them. And Clarice has the stakes of the throne added to this equation, and she just simply lets her children be who they want to be. It's really beautiful. And then we see her do the exact same thing with Mia. Despite the fact that the stakes are now even higher, with Mia's refusal of the crown meaning the end of the Genovian royal family as Clarice knows it. So let's look at her relationship with Mia and why they are the perfect mentor-mentee match. So one of the most important things that Clarice does in her relationship with Mia is that she cuts through the noise of Mia's life. Because wow, is Mia's life full of judgy people with lots of opinions. It's truly no wonder that she's so insecure. Mia is constantly belittled by people in her life, whether they're friends like Lily or enemies like Lana. Mia, at the end of her rope, kind of explodes on Clarice at one point, saying that she feels like everyone is ragging on her and telling her what to do. 
But this comes pretty directly after Lily has once again come for Mia's throat over one of her choices, whether it's her new hair or her crush on Josh, who she just dismisses as a Backstreet Boy clone, when Mia is just trying to tell her how excited she is to go to the beach party with him. It is impossible for Mia to even hear her own thoughts in the relationship with her best friend. And although Mia's mother is loving and does want the best for her, she's also just another source of noise and chaos in Mia's life, dating her teacher. Yes, like, she like lacks structure. No structure. She keeps a major no secret structure. from her. There's a lot of love there, but Mia and Helen keep missing each other on the communication front as well, with Mia often just ending up in her room when she gets overwhelmed by Helen. Which is often. Which is often, and I don't blame her. Helen's a lot. Helen's love a her, lot. though, but she's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Clarice, however, is very even-keeled and straightforward with Mia. The princess lessons, rather than being a nuisance, start to feel like a place where Mia can actually escape from the chaos and noise of her life. It actually really struck me during this viewing how we just like kind of look at this movie in our minds as, okay, like, girl gets a makeover and is taught by her grandmother how not to be like a clumsy nerd. It indicates an expectation of a sternness or a harshness from Clarice that really just doesn't exist. I watched her closely in every princess lesson scene, and she's honestly chill as fuck. In one scene, she's even just doing some paperwork while Mia practices sitting up straight. These lessons are not intimidating or aggressive at all. It's just structure. And how we know that Mia craves this, I just realized this. In their debate class, what are they debating? <gasps> yes, and Mia School wants uniforms. to keep the uniform. And who is the affirmative? <sighs> I love that so much. She wants she wants structure, predictability. She needs. She's craving structure. <gasps> oh, baby like, girl, you will wear stockings, not tights. I never want to see those shoes again. And she does the she, things. Yeah, yeah, she does. Oh, that's because touching. she needs someone to say, "I need you to be here at this time doing this thing." <sighs> Poor baby she girl. craves structure. Wow. Wow. This so true. Is <laughs> it is. <laughs> it ties perfectly into my next point is that Mia is also a bit traumatized by the fickle nature of some of the closest relationships in her life. Mm. She becomes mm. used to Lily just suddenly being mad at her or Josh thinking that she's uncool. It makes her very concerned with her grandmother's feelings towards her. And she is just used to constantly assessing where she stands with people. After a fire and other disasters caused by her at the state dinner, she asks Clarice, you're not mad at me for what happened? We can feel her expecting the worst. But Clarice just breezily answers, actually, I found it rather funny. It reminds me of my first royal dinner party. <sighs> and although this is arguably the most high-stakes situation in Mia's life thus far, Clarice finds a way of constantly lowering the temperature. The next key part of this relationship, Clarice never pressures Mia. There is shockingly little to no pressure from Clarice for Mia to accept the throne. The entire future of Clarice's country hangs in the balance. The stakes are high, and she clearly never intends to do anything except acquaint Mia with what a life as a royal entails and then allow her to choose it or not choose it for herself. She constantly reminds Mia that no matter what she decides, she is her family first. This is a sign of a fantastic mentor. 
She makes it clear that Mia the person is way more important than Mia in the job that Clarice is mentoring her to take on. You're still family. Just because you don't want to be our princess doesn't mean that we're sending you to exile, she tells her. And she adds in later, oh, my dear, you are first and foremost my granddaughter. I'll cry. Clarice doesn't sugarcoat the expectations of a princess in order to convince Mia to take on something that she might not actually be ready for. Mm -hmm. She says, people think princesses are supposed to wear tiaras, marry the prince, always look pretty and live happily ever after. But it's so much more than that. It's a real job. Though it actually might be in Clarice's best interest to do so, she never manipulates the reality of being royal. She presents it as it is and largely without commentary. Mia's consistent feeling that everyone in her life is telling her what to do makes her shut down a lot and strengthens her desire to become, as she says, invisible. Clarice's lack of pressure is what actually allows Mia to feel safe enough to visualize her life as a princess and allow herself to look at the possibility of being something other than invisible. And on that note, Clarice accepts Mia for who she is. Clarice takes Mia at face value. The makeover scene might feel like an exception, but to me, this actually feels like an extension of Clarice's work to make Mia more comfortable with taking up space and being seen. Mia truly cannot stand to be looked at. She tells Clarice as soon as she meets her that her expectation in life is to be invisible. The makeover is gorgeous and iconic, yes, but on a literal level, it clears everything away from around Mia's face so that we can actually look into her eyes and really take her in. It's not about the perfectly plucked brows or the blowout. It's about preventing Mia from continuing to hide behind her glasses or her hair. And Clarice also doesn't make Mia do all of the bending. She is willing to go outside of her comfort zone as well. Their day out in San Francisco with arcade games and Ugh. corn dogs is Best part. beautiful. I mean, she's willing to do what Mia likes to do, no matter how odd it may feel to her. And she recognizes when Mia has hit a little bit of a breaking point and just needs some love and care and fun. Yes. As a mentor, she recognizes that hammering away at the goal at the expense of the mentee's emotional state is just counterproductive and honestly cruel. She has her priorities straight. And as I said before, Mia the person before Mia the princess. But Clarice is also not an overly sappy, insincere mentor who just like lavishes on praise or assurances that aren't true if Mia's feeling a little bit down. When Mia tells Clarice that she'll be turning down the crown because she can't bear to disappoint her again, Clarice doesn't launch into an overly encouraging speech about how Mia could never disappoint her. Because honestly, that would be a lie. She doesn't rebut Mia's feelings with falsities. She simply allows Mia's feelings to be present and be what they are. She looks at her and just says simply, I have faith in you. No explaining away anything. Mm. Interestingly, a great part of this relationship is that Clarice, while being Mia's opposite in a lot of ways also relates to her. And I think it's the perfect balance. So usually a great mentor possesses skills that the mentee lacks. And Clarice certainly models behavior that it would do Mia good to learn. Mia is a very absolute thinker. We hear her say never and always, and this is as good as it's going to get. While Clarice, as we talked about earlier, has a much more fluid view of the world. 
For example, she views the paparazzi, who could be a major thorn in her side, as just something the royal family has always dealt with and will continue to handle. That's how she puts it. Mia also has a hard time making people feel special and keeping her word. It's what causes her major fallouts with Lily and Michael, two of the people who are closest to her. Clarice, as we discussed earlier, is an expert at making people feel special. But rather than simply teaching Mia the things that she doesn't know and therefore highlighting their differences in knowledge and experience, Clarice tells Mia often that she can actually relate with her. Clarice is royal by marriage, not by blood, and likely had her own adjusting to do when she joined the Genovian royal family. She references her own imperfect royal dinner and tells Mia at the film's conclusion, I recognize the same spirit in you as someone else I know, me. If Clarice was a less than amazing mentor, she would see so much of herself in Mia that she would expect Mia to behave and make choices the same way that she would, but beautifully... Mia only becomes a more confident version of herself through Clarice's mentorship. As I watched her evolve, I was kind of like sort of on autopilot, like looking for ways that Mia became more like Clarice and which traits she picked up from her. But her shows of strength, from coning Lana to pushing past her fear of public speaking, are quintessentially Mia. And finally, the most important part. Clarice sincerely believes in Mia. Lesser mentors may approach a mentorship with the view that their mentee will only succeed because of their help, that they need their mentor in order to be worthy, but Clarice indicates often that Mia's worthiness is intrinsic. Whether it's Mia asking or whether it's Clarice discussing it with Joe, Clarice never expresses anything but full faith in Mia's ability to rule, as well as faith in her ability to decide what's best for her own future. She lets Mia know that she can do it, and she leaves it at that. And she teaches Mia that setbacks are a part of anything and not indicative of her potential success as a princess. She says, you wouldn't stop driving your Mustang just because a couple of insects hit the windshield, would you? Besides, look how far you've come. So what do all the qualities of this mentor relationship have in common? They all ultimately allow Mia to save, for lack of a better word, herself. If you're a 15-year-old, insecure, invisible, bullied high schooler, you're likely wondering, as the opening song of the movie says, who's going to save me? A queen giving a teenager princess lessons sounds a lot like that. But what Clarice really does is clear all the distractions and criticism out of Mia's life and allow her to connect with her inner strength and inner convictions, removed from the expectations of anyone else. Like the best fairy godmothers, Clarice only uncovers who Mia was all along. I think a good way to describe what Clarice teaches Mia is this. The importance of grace. The knowledge that power is nothing without respect. Why one must have patience, positivity, perspective, manners, kindness, and humility. Always. To everyone. No exceptions. The joy in treating people as a gift rather than a burden. How far choosing gratitude can get you. Oh, wait. That's what Anne Hathaway wrote about what she learned from working with Julie Andrews. My God. So to close it all off, my favorite shot of The Princess Diaries is at the end of the movie. The camera is trailing behind Clarice and Mia in their ball gowns, entering the royal ball after Mia has accepted the crown. The room is quiet. 
the crowd watches them intently as the orchestra starts to play. Their arms are outstretched and their hands are delicately touching. They're entering the way a king and queen, a royal couple, would enter a room. Their postures indicate power, something that we would hardly recognize in the Mia from the beginning of the film. But more than that, their entrance and their postures and stance indicate equality. To me, this is the ultimate proof of the success of this mentorship. The end result is two people seeing eye to eye in positions freely chosen. And to top it all off, we get miracles happen just a minute or so later. Mm. And now I cannot hear the lyrics any other way, but almost like a conversation happening between Mia and Clarice with Mia saying, you showed me faith is not blind. I don't need wings to help me fly. And Clarice answering, miracles happen once in a while when you believe. Uh, I mean, it also makes me think of when Mia like goes off with Michael into the garden and the camera like racks focus on Clarice looking at her. And it's like her like looking at her like watching how she's blossomed that Mia is taking charge not just about the thing that they were working on together like being princess but, every but she's now taking those lessons life. but taking charge of that in her own life like yeah. my her personal life yeah and like the look of approval it's just so has so much weight that uh, that movie is just that movie so oh god there's so much happening in that movie you you will there's hear so and see something new uh, every time uh so good. You really will. Yeah. And you can also just like, you can 100% see that the people who did Brady Cinderella did this. I was just cackling. I'm like, this is my taste. Whatever like, this yeah. is, is my taste. <laughs> it is. It's your brand. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you all so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please remember to hit five stars and leave a rating and a written review wherever you can. Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Facebook, all the all the places. Your review could be the difference between someone hitting play or passing us by. And we're so close to a hundred reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening on Apple, which I know a lot of you are, you know, make that happen. Thank you. <laughs> and please follow us on social media. We are at Poor Unfortunate Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and we are at Unfortunate Pod on Twitter. And I keep forgetting we are also on TikTok. Yeah, we're, we're on at TikTok. Poor Unfortunate Podcast on TikTok. It's the same thing that you'll find on Instagram. So don't sweat yeah. it if you haven't been following us there up until now. Um, we will, of course, want to hear your opinions about this episode. Uh, during our previous episode, the Poor Unfortunate Awards, we presented some reels of the nominees. We asked your opinions on some of the categories. So we love to hear what you think about the episodes. So it's a great place to make your voice heard. But if you want even more Poor Unfortunate podcasts in your life and you want to talk more about the episodes, tell us what you think, meet other people who listen to the podcast, please join us in our private Facebook group, The Poor Unfortunate Fam. I think that's also something else that is inching closer and closer to 100 every day. Yeah. So let's get to 100 reviews and 100 people in the fam. What do you say? That would be great. Miracles I, happen, I right? Yes. Yeah, I say yes, too. Once in a while. <laughs> and if you're looking for some merch, you can always go to the Poor Unfortunate shop. It is poorunfortunatepodcast.com slash shop. T-shirts, sweatshirts, uh, n- 
what what else do I have? Uh, bags, hats, bags, hats, hats. It's the sun's coming out, folks. So you you might oh, want to get the baseball a hat. hats are so good. They're they're really good. There's three colors. There's pink, blue, and black. Oh, yes. Um. So yeah, poorunfortunatepodcast.com slash shop. Get your merch. And as I always say, it does take us a little bit of money to keep the podcast up and running and coming to you. We do have a PayPal account. It's linked in the episode description and in our website links, in our social media profiles. Truly anything that you have to spare goes a long way for us. It can be $5, $10, more than that. You can make it a one-time donation, a monthly donation. It all just goes right back into the podcast, helping us keep it free and ad-free for the most part. Special thank you, as always, to all of the folks who are donating on a monthly basis. Thank you. Your donations mean so much to us. They help us keep this going, and we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you, as always. All righty. Well, that's uh, going to be the end, right? Uh, That's it. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Well, until next time, Beluga Beluga Sabruga. Sabruga.